Hey, this is Red Beach from Whitesnake, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. Got a double dose of guestly goodness this week for you. First up, you'll be hearing from the guy you heard at the beginning of the show. That's right, Red Beach is uh, back on the show again this week, talking about several things, but the primary thing he's on here for is to discuss his brand new solo album instrumental deal out on Frontiers called a view from the inside. But also, Richie takes a little bit of time to chat with Reb about some winger stuff and some white stake stuff and all that as well. So first up this week is a chat with Reb Beach. And after that, another uh, guy who's been on the show, I don't know how many times at this point, but uh, we're talking with Martin Popoff. And Martin has always got things in the works. And this week, Richie is talking to him in particular about his latest book on Rush entitled Limelight. Rush in the 80s, Richie's favorite era of Rush. So lots of good talk with Martin this week as well. And since between those two guests, there is definitely a lot to talk about and a lot to hear this week. I'm just going to shut the hell up and turn it over to Richie and guitarist Reb Beach. Hello. Is that Reb? Yep. Hey, Reb. Richie here for the interview. You're probably doing a run of them, are you? Uh, I'm doing a bunch of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... I might as well get in. I'll get into it then. You're in Pittsburgh, are you? I am. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm just outside of Boston. Oh, love Boston, man. We, my mom had a house in Duxbury, and I went to school in Boston, and uh, a long history there. Mm, you just love it. Yeah, um, but I'm. A, I'm the next parish over. I'm originally from Ireland. Ah, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm Boston Irish, like Michael Devon. Yeah. Our uh, bass, bass player. Yeah, yeah, that's his right. His family's there. Yeah, his family comes to the show and they all get drunk and have a great time. Yeah, I was at a show in Hampton Beach a few years ago and uh, I think David just spent the whole show taking the piss out of Michael on stage. <laughs> <laughs> was, I know, I remember. Yeah, it was funny. <laughs> it was really funny. Yeah, so you've been stuck at home now for most of the year with COVID, but I'm wondering how many guitars do you think you have in your house? Oh man, I'm not that guy. <laughs> um, I, honestly, you know, I know so many guys that have like 50 guitars. I've got in my house. I've got let's see, five, and oh. then um, six, I guess. And then on the road, there's probably four more. Okay, is there any that you have in the house that you won't bring on the road? It's too precious to you. Well, my precious one I gave to Kip Winger just for all the everything he's done for me because I didn't want that on the road anymore. Uh, it was the original Pensa Sur, um, that you know Koa Wood one that I used in Headed for Heartbreak. But yeah. I've got an I have an exact replica of that. I have a Les Paul that someone made me that I hate to take on the road just because it's so freaking heavy. <laughs> it weighs a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I don't have any collectible guitars I, I just never did the fender gibson thing and those are really the only guitars that are worth you know something every year they get they get worth more 
Yeah. Um, have you ever gotten rid of a guitar and regretted it? Yeah, every single one. In 1990, <laughs> 1993, I missed that blue Kramer, and uh, oh, there's a ton of them. I mean, I sold. That's how I survived for an entire year. I paid all of the bills for a year by selling guitars, and that's it. Did any of them ever surface again years later that someone would say, hey, your guitar's been sold and you've been tempted to get it back? It's always the one I, I hated. <laughs> you know, it's always the one, always the one I didn't care about that, that surfaces because people keep selling it because it's a piece of shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so you got, you got the new album out now, A View From The Inside. It's out about a week. Um, we are more nervous about this coming out than maybe Flesh and Blood or the Black Swan album because it's got your Absolutely. name on it. Yes, oh yes. Much more nervous. Um, especially because I didn't know what people, uh, how they would react rather to a, to an instrumental record. And, um, I'm, I was pleasantly surprised because the reviews are all awesome. And, and it's, and, and most of them say exactly what I was going for with the record, which is that you don't have to be, um, a lover of guitar to enjoy the music on this record. Cause I, I made it for, you know, just Joe, regular guy, um, to enjoy. It's very, very easy to understand. It's not, you know, totally out there. It's all, you know, lots of great melodies that you can hum along to. Mm. What's your go-to guitar instrumental album from the past? Do you have one? You know, honestly, I don't really like guitar instrumental albums. <laughs> 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 and there's not a lot of them that I like, you know. Um, so, I mean, the one for me was, was Surfing with the Alien. That was my favorite one. I still love that record. Hi, this is Joe Satriani, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Mm. Um, you know, I wasn't a big Jeff Beck guy. Uh, I, I was into Jean-Luc Ponty, who was a violinist. So... What project did Frontiers ask you to do first? Did they ask you to do Black Swan, or were they on to you about doing that? An oh, no, they weren't on to me. They did it as a favor for me, <laughs> the instrumental record. You know, they typically they don't sell well, and they kind of just as a favor because of our long history together were kind enough to, to sign it and, and put it out there for me. And I think, I think they're happy. It seems to be doing really well. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, but no, uh, Black Swan, yes, they're, they're ready for Black Swan too, because it did very, very well for mm. the, uh, for the label. Well, I had, I'm, I'm friends with Robin and I had Jeff on to promote that. So I did my bit earlier on this year to try and get the word out. That's one of my favorite records of 2020. Um, right on. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that, that went really well because I had a bunch of good riffs from Winger that Winger didn't use. And um, came in there with 50 ideas, and Jeff Tilson went to town. We wrote the whole album in 10 days. So, you know, I, I was really happy that I was prepared like that. And then Tilson called me a couple of weeks ago and said, Hey, Rad, you know, we're probably going to have to do another Black Swan, so I'm hoping that you're going to have some riffs. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I've, I've been working on, on them, so I've got a bunch more. Mm. I think your guitar tone on the Black Swan record is... It's a little bit different to what I'm used to hearing you, especially on Winger and, and even on the Whitesnake album. It's a different tone. It's Jeff's amp. Ah, oh, okay. It makes yeah, it sound that, different. 
absolutely. It's a different amp and different a different preamp. The the studio, the room was different than we usually do. Um, for sure. It, um, it, but same guitar though. Okay, it must be great for you as a player though, knowing that you can get something like that out there that people are going to go, "Whoa, is that really Reb?" <laughs> Uh, you mean as far as my instrumental album, or Black no, no, Swan? no, just Black Swan. Just, just talking about that, just for a second. Well, uh, I don't know what you mean by that. To me, it sounds like me. Okay, it sounds exactly like me. Okay. Um, it, uh, one thing that's a little different is that Jeff is such an excitable guy that I would play one solo, just one pass. And he would say, oh, my God, that's it. You did it all. This is incredible. And, and I'd say, well, wait, you got to give me another chance. He's like, you don't need another chance. Listen to this. And so most of those solos are first take because Jeff was able to convince me that he liked them, you know, just the first time I played it. Nice. Um, and then they weren't bad. So so it's a little bit more raw, I guess, for me. Yeah. But uh, other than that, I mean, when I listen to it, it sounds like me playing guitar. Okay. Okay. I'm just going as I don't play guitar, but as a fan, I'm like, wow, that's a little bit different sounding for, for Reb for me. Now, I like it, but as a, I'm just putting the fan hat on here and just letting you know that it does sound a little bit different from you. Well, Robin's got a different voice than maybe other singers that I've worked with, you know? So yeah. maybe it's just hearing it in that context mm. with him, you know? I mean, he's, he's just amazing. You know, he really sounds like that when he sings. Um, he's not using, you know, studio wizardry or anything. He was actually singing when we were filming those videos and he was singing the exact part. It was just amazing to stand next to him and hear his voice. Wow. Uh, it, it's just quite a, it, it's really something that I, I don't know how old he is, but I, he's an older guy and he sounds like he's freaking 22. Yeah. Yeah. He still has the chops. Um, so tell me, Rev, the, the solo record, what was the first song written for it? Cause that normally the first song can maybe shape the, the whole album. <laughs> the first song was written in 1986. <laughs> 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 Which is uh, Little Robots, which is the first uh, song, first fusion song I ever wrote when I was 23 years old in Hoboken, um, you know, doing sessions. So um, that was the first one. And then it was Black Magic for, no, then it was Cutting Loose that I wrote for the instructional video I put out in 1989. And then it was Black Magic for that I wrote for a uh, Guitar World compilation record, but it was both of those were just the worst quality that all these years I've been dying to re-record them with real musicians rather than me sitting in a little drum machine. Mm. The rest you... of it I wrote through the years, you know, on and off, just okay. in my little studio in my garage. So you've you've stopped, you've started and stopped doing this album many times over the years. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and for I I stopped for. You know, I wrote those songs for those, um, just for for the video and for the album. But then I went on the road for years, you know, like you know, write one song during Christmas of you know, nineteen ninety seven, and then you know, go back out on the road. You know, it was just it was like a hobby. I never really thought um, that it would ever be released. Honestly, I, I would tell the fans, yeah, I got some great instrumental stuff. I'd love to do the record one day. And, and so they've been waiting a long time for it. How did your opinion change on some of the earlier songs when you listen to them with fresh ears? Because 
a lot of artists might say, yeah, it sounded great when I wrote it years ago, but now when I listen to it, nah, it's not really doing it for me. No, it didn't happen. Everyone's favorite song was the first was the one I wrote in in '86. Is uh, Little Robots seems to be the big favorite, and Sea of Tranquility, which was only a few years ago I wrote. But no, they stood up. Black Magic has stood up all this time. It's the um, it's actually the the song, the theme song for the Osaka baseball team in Japan. And so I didn't know that. I had a student, a Japanese student, who said. He wanted to learn black magic. And I said, why do you want to learn black magic? How do you know that song? And he said, are you kidding? Everyone in Japan knows this song, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, wow. It, I didn't know that it's on, you know, every time the, that baseball team comes on TV, they play that song. And I, I looked at my statements and was like, whoa, I, I have been getting paid for 20 years for that. And didn't know it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Now, I had Mike Frazier on the show a few times, the engineer. He's done a lot of albums with Joe Satriani. And one of the questions I remember asking Mike was, you know, performance for a guitar player in, in the studio versus feel and how it sounds. And he said that oftentimes Joe Satriani might say to him that I can't put this on the record because it, it's not scientifically correct. And Mike would say, yeah, but it sounds awesome. Like, <laughs> how tough are you? in the studio when it comes to stuff like that are you are you more of a feel player or do you are you do you have the hat on where you're gonna you're thinking to yourself i've got a load of fans here now and they're just going to pull apart everything that i do so it has to be perfect no i just don't like anything that pulls my ear so it's either it's either there's a right or wrong you know that sometimes you play weird stuff and you have to sit there and make a decision is it too weird is it too grammatically incorrect or is that weirdness so cool that it doesn't matter? Like I'm playing a major note over a minor scale, which is completely a bad, that's a no, no, you know? Um, yeah. But some, sometimes you do it and it's just sexy. You think you mean that shit, you know, <laughs> and it works. Hmm. So you just have to be able to, to make that determination. And that usually doesn't take me very long to do. Is that, the one thing I can do is play it for Kip Winger, and he'll say yes or no. Instantly, he knows that stuff. So, so that's something you've always felt. It's not something that you grew into over the years. It's probably something I learned from from Kip. Okay. Uh, you know, I it, it, to to know if it's good or bad. You know, when I was younger, I probably would have you know just let anything go just because I liked it. But then I learned that you know it's people will just think it's a mistake. You know, even though you think it's cool, people will think it's a mistake. If it sounds like a mistake, then don't keep it. Okay. Simple question, Reb. How do you come up with titles for songs with no lyrics? You know, you just listen to it and think about what it makes you think of. And the only song on the record that doesn't adhere to that is uh, Aurora Borealis, because that was originally called Finnegan's Wake, because it sounds like an Irish jig to me. Mm-hmm. And, and and I just didn't like that name, because uh, it just kind of pigeonholed it, and it wasn't, it wasn't like a that Irish either. So I uh, asked Rod Morgenstein and listened to it for... 30 seconds and said Aurora Borealis and I said well that's a nice name why not who cares um, but the other ones though you know it's just how they made me feel okay okay now the easy thing on this probably would have been for you to play all of the bass tracks as well but you, you didn't go down that route can you tell me about finding the, the, the bass player and the drummer for this yeah 
I played the bass on I think one song, and it, 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 I tried two different bass, three different bass players on this on Infinito Eleven Twenty Two, and I should have just had them play my part because I it had to be that bass part, and I didn't know it until it was too late, so I just played it myself um, because these bass players all played different things on it, and it, it just needed to be that part. The problem is, is that I'm not a real bass player. I'm a guitar player. And when I play bass, it sounds like a guitar player playing bass. You know, there's a thing to playing bass. When I go up and jam with Michael Devon and put my shoulder against his, I can feel that his time is way more back than my time. You know, and that's what you need for a bass player. The drummer is uh, Dave Frockmorton, who is my favorite drummer of all time, and I've been working with him forever. He played on Masquerade, and he's in the Red Beach Project. And um, Philip Bino was referred to me by a friend uh, who was perfect for just the funky stuff, you know. He was amazing, killer bass player. And then my local player here is John Hall, who played on a, a few songs. Okay, nice, nice. Now, a couple of years ago, you finally got to write an album with David Coverdale, and you've done a lot of albums with Kip over the years. Uh, what's the biggest difference in their approach to writing songs? Well, it, the biggest difference is probably that David's not into the progressive stuff. You know, we get really out there with Kip. And like, when I came in with, I came in with 15 riffs last time I came to Nashville last month, and I'm going to Nashville tomorrow again to begin the next round. Um, I came in with 15 guitar riffs, and Kip said they're great, but I don't want any riffs where after hearing four chords, I know what the next four chords are going to be. So I want something unique and fresh, you know? David only wants three chords for the entire song, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, he, and David, you, you can't go to David and play him like a CD of song ideas. Uh, you just have to pick up an acoustic and just, you know, play it and sing it for him and he'll that he'll respond to that you know he's old school he's super super songwriter you know and he gets ideas they just get beamed into him and sometimes he comes up with these ideas that i don't like at first they're they sound like show tunes but then you know after a week i can't get it out of my head you know? <laughs> so so and then so it's it's my job and joel hoster's job to to make them into more rock songs you know yeah yeah now a couple of months ago I interviewed Bo Hill and one of the albums I talked to him about in depth was uh, Love Is For Suckers the Twisted Sister album God, and everyone's talking about this just because that one article came out now everyone wants to know about that it's very interesting to me which article go ahead which article Rev there was one um, that you know the headline was Bo Hill says that Red Beach did most of the guitar on the Twisted Sister record now I've done five interviews where people have asked me. well you can blame which is fine you can blame me because I'm the guy who interviewed Bo oh it was you <laughs> it was me we, we talked about the, I talked about that record and I talked about the uh, the Rat album that he did the year after but one of the questions, I, I talked to you about this album years ago, and one of the questions I never asked you was, um, did JJ or Eddie ever come into the studio and see you laying down the guitars for that record? No, we did it at night after he left. Okay. Were you afraid they were going to come in and see you? No. Okay. He didn't even know, he didn't even know until years later. He saw me at a NAMM show, and he said, you played those parts, didn't you? And I said, yeah. 
<laughs> he said, I didn't even know. He said, I just thought I sounded really good. <laughs> he's really nice he was really nice about it yeah yeah now i just got a couple of questions Reb, before i let you go in the heart of the young is 30 years old and I, i've spoken to you about this album in the in the past as well but initially when you sent that into the label they rejected it um can you remember who told you that it was rejected well, uh yeah yeah Okay. Like Kit, Kit does all the business. He's the, he's a shark. He's a businessman. You know, I, I'm Bambi with a penis. That's about <laughs> it. I'm just, I'm, you know, um, he's 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 the man. So you know, he came in. He said, "We need we need two more songs. We need hit songs. There's not enough hits for those guys because they're gonna release Miles Away, the first single, and that would be the Kiss of Death." to release a ballad as our first single. So, um, so we wrote can't get enough and easy come easy go in one day. Okay. Did that piss you off big time when you heard it was rejected? I heard it (laughs) totally. I was really pissed off because I loved the album the way it was. Um, and when Kip first wrote easy come easy go, I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. Uh, I liked Can't Get Enough because I ripped it off from Judas Priest, and so I thought it was a cool riff, you know. Um, it, it's not a total ripoff from Judas Priest, by the way. It's just it, it's that vibe, you know. And so, uh-huh. so I liked Can't Get Enough a lot. We wrote that together in a half an hour. He Honestly, he just played the drum machine, bum, 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 and I played those chords, and it was done. And um, and Easy Come was his. He, he just wrote it out of the blue. And... Uh, you know, I thought it was stupid at first, but now I love it. And, and it's a really well-written, nice little song, hit song for sure. And I'm really glad that we did go back to the drawing board because if we hadn't had those singles, I don't think it would have been half as successful. So it, the, the record company was right in hindsight. Uh, uh. So what can you tell me about the new Winger record? Is, it, um, is Paul Taylor going to be on it? Yeah, uh, Paul Taylor is is helping us write it. He's brought a bunch of ideas in that we're working on, um, which is you know hasn't happened since geez, uh, in the heart of the young, and hasn't really happened at all. Honestly, <laughs> it was just miles away uh, with his song, you know. Um, but he's bringing song ideas in. Johnny Roth is, is contributing. Um, it, it, you know, it, we're we're definitely doing it with me and Kip the way we always do it. But Kip's got a super high bar on this one. So, you know, if you, every idea I've brought him so far, he's turned down, which is fine because it'll be Black Swan or, or something else in the future. But I have to say that Kip, Kip, the bar is higher on this record than it's ever been, really. It's It's got to be awesome or Kip won't, he'll say next, you know. Mm. Um, we wrote 11 songs, Kip threw away six of them. So now we're down to five and, and they're really good. So, I mean, I like it better than the last record already. And we're only halfway done. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a massive fan of the band. I always have been. And, you know, five or six years gap between albums for, for winger is, I think it's a, it's a couple of years too long. I know you're all really busy. They, yeah, I don't know why it takes us so long to do records. I guess because, you know, yeah, you're right. We're also busy. You know, Rod's not teaching anymore, so he's not as busy anymore. But it's it's really Kip, you know. He he always bites off more than he can chew. 
yeah, you know, he's, well, I'm going to write a, um, let's see, I want a Broadway show. Uh, also, I'm going to write a symphony. <laughs> you know, I mean, these things are huge undertakings. Uh, so it definitely there's that. And then there's, it's a lot of my fault that David, um, you know, he used to take a year off every other year, not anymore. You know, he, he would go every single year. Hmm. For the last three years, and so that that put a damper on that as well. Yeah. So, Rev, final question: um, Are you still doing the Skype lessons? Oh hell yeah! Yeah. Do you want to give it. Do you want to give out the, where people can get in touch with you to schedule those? Sure. It's just you know you can just Google Red Beach Guitar Lessons, or you could uh, you know it's official Red Beach at Gmail dot com. Okay. Is the email to so just email us and we'll hook you up. Fantastic. Well, Reb, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. The instrumental album yeah. is excellent. Just just keep making music, and I'll keep buying it and helping you promote it. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Really good talking to you. Yeah. All right, Reb. Take care. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Thanks okay. a lot. See you. Bye. All right. Like I said, lots of good stuff this week. I hope you liked that interview with Reb. Very candid, very open. Good stuff there. But uh, no time to uh, mull on that one right now. Want to dive right into Rissy's chat with Martin Popoff all about Limelight Rush in the 80s. Hey, Martin. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm really enjoying you on uh, Pete Pardo's show to see a tranquility. You seem to be on it a lot. Yeah, I have been, but it's been a couple of weeks now because he's been very busy with that um, with that uh, festival he's putting on. So we're uh, we're basically in a little bit of a holding pattern, kind of think of thinking up some new ideas to do as well. Um, and hopefully, I'll be back on soon. But I, I definitely miss it. I've been off for a couple of weeks, so. Yeah, he picked some interesting topics. Uh, the ranking of the yeah. albums is very I, I really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, some topics. I mean, I'm I'm pretty picky with the whole topic thing. There's there's a lot of stuff that I don't like doing, so I I tell them no a lot. But uh, you know, and I I really you know uh, on other shows I, I it gets kind of ridiculous. Like I don't I don't like this just comparing two random albums, uh, you know, that came out the same year or whatever. So there's there's a lot of topics that I think I I just can't I can't get my uh, get my teeth into. You know. Yeah. So so Martin, what book are you writing at the moment? Can you tell me? Yeah, so right now um, we're doing a follow-up in this visual biography series. Um, we're going to do one of those on your eye heap. And I've got an angel book that goes to print like any day now. It's it's I just approved the layout more or less. There's a couple little little typos to fix. So a book on angel. And then after that, I, uh, I shelved the book to do the angel book on sweet. So I think I've got a sweet book that's at about... Uh, Hopefully it's at about seventy thousand words. So I've got a little more to do on that one. And then I'm I'm also tinkering with a pretty wild idea. Um, it's not very long at this point, but uh, but a very extended and occulted and strange um, version of a timeline on uh, the Bluish Occult Imaginos story. Oh wow! And are these all self-published, or if we're a publishing house? Uh, let's see. So the visual biography is through a publisher, Weimer, in the UK again. And the angel will be self-published for now. Uh, what else did I say? The suite would be self-published, and probably the Bluester Cult thing would be self-published. And then we've got the third of the Rush one out through ECW in uh, in March of uh, 2021. Mm. Let's talk about the Rush one, Martin. That's the main reason I have you on. Uh, before okay. we before we get into this one, I'm going to say that the 80s era of Rush is my favorite. 
and I'm in the, I know okay. I'm in the minority. Yeah, I, I would say you're a bit in the minority, but I mean, the 80s is a funny one because, well, you're not in the minority in a way, because the 80s really for Rush is defined by two separate eras, one that everybody loves and one that a lot of people don't like very much, including myself. So, so that's the funny thing about 80s Rush. I mean, everybody loves moving pictures, and I love signals, and a lot of people love signals. And, and you know, this book kicks off with permanent waves. Everybody loves that. But what a difference, you know, when you get to the end of the decade. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a funny one. It, it literally is a, a decade of two halves for Rush. Mm. Um, one of the impressions I got reading this one compared to the, the 70s one is that Getty really becomes the leader of the band. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? Uh, yeah, I think it is a fair thing, thing to say. That's pretty perceptive. I mean, I think he does really kind of take over because all of a sudden he's adding keyboards and keyboards becomes pretty important. So he he's, you know, it, it essentially becomes a band, at least by the end of the, the 80s, a band with four main instruments plus a lead singer. Obviously, he's not the lyricist, so, um, you know, that's a little odd and it's an area of leadership that he's not in. But... I think Neil doing the lyrics and being the drummer and being in a trio basically is enough leadership for him. And I would say it's it's really Alex in a way that I suppose um, is is uh, it falls back the most. But yeah, I think I think Getty and he also gets more involved in the stage show and the videos and all that stuff. So he's you know I wouldn't say he's the most intellectually curious by a long shot, but maybe he is a little bit more the more intellectually curious, and he slowly begins you know outpacing the guys maybe maybe in the interest of the band hmm. I'd love to know why the other two guys let him do it though is do you think there was they just didn't want to deal with a lot of those aspects of it and they let Getty deal with it and do you think that they regret it now that you know in the end that the sound that they developed kind of hurt them in a way that's a great question I've never heard that question before or even even it's sort of uh surmised that way but um so I would say the first part of the answer would have to be that they are all pretty respectful of each other, and it is a trio. So in a trio, I think there's enough power and direction-making uh, ability to go around for everybody. So that's the first thing. Second thing, they, they are very respectful of each other, and... You know, I think I think people don't mind if somebody takes a leadership role and is a little more enthusiastic. And like I say, I think I think Neil had enough of his hands full, anyways, because Neil also kind of participated in that keyboard thing by participating in electronic drums. So he got really interested in all this different percussion stuff that was going on. So he had his hands full, anyways. So it's that really leaves one guy. It leaves Alex. And it is funny though that you do see those guys defend the likes of Presto and, and hold your fire quite, quite vehemently anyways, which is quite odd. And, and Neil was kind of the same way. You do see a little bit of regret and, and the regret I think does come a little bit from Alex. Um, when, when he looks back, you know, he, he will never be very disparaging about those records, but he will say, Oh, well, I, I thought the production was a little lighter or thin or something like that. Right. And, and we lost direction a little bit, and, and they'll say in a general sense, but probably not even really mean it. They will say in a general sense that uh, you know we 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 do mistakes, we make mistakes like anybody else. You know we make our mistakes 
uh, on, on record and live in, in, in for the world to see. But, you know, they'll never lean heavily on a statement like that, right? Mm. They'll, they'll just kind of le- let it hang out there. So I think there's a little bit of regret, but not a lot. I mean, I, I think, like I say, Getty and Neil kind of defended those records. I think, Martin, reading the two books that, Neil is the one that's a bit more disparaging of the 70s era stuff that he feels that some of it is a bit naive, but he's more of a fan of the what, what they developed into in the 80s than a lot of the 70s albums. Definitely. He is the guy that, that would be the most disparaging to the 70s stuff, uh, you know, which kind of shows his bad taste in music, I think. I mean, it literally shows that he's not understanding how beloved that material is you know and and he he was a guy with strong opinion so he can have his opinion but it it is you know it is a an opinion in the minority because the 70s stuff really never fell out of favor with anybody and now it's considered you know hallowed ground like great great material so it's funny when you know when when he will do that it's almost like he's wrong in a way you know, and, and maybe the 80s stuff will become cool again, but it never, or it, I mean, the late 80s stuff never was cool, and it never became cool in the 90s or the 2000s or the 2010s. Maybe it'll have its day one day. But the 70s stuff, if it ever was uncool for any brief period, it certainly isn't uncool now. I mean, people love those records and love that material. And, you know, uh, frankly, I think, um, I think you could even be more objective uh, when it comes to the production of 70s versus 80s. I think that 70s production, you can never go wrong with a fully correct analog full-range production sound. So those records never sounded bad. Um, the 80s records maybe sounded good for, for like a week and a half in the 80s, <laughs> um, but but you know later, later they have just generally been considered dated sounding. Mm. The other thing that I found interesting in the book, Martin, was... Um the challenge of actually playing a lot of that stuff live, that it really was daunting when they recorded it and then they realized, okay, we have to do this on stage. How are we, we going to do it as a three-piece? And it amazed me that one of them never put up their hand and said, this is too much. We just, we, we just cannot do this because they were all using triggers and samples and everything. And it was just crazy, I think, especially around the time of Hold Your Fire. Yeah, and it screwed up sometimes, and Getty, I mean, he does come out and say it was not fun doing that stuff on stage, being so chained to the keyboards and being having to concentrate so much and, and do all that. So, yeah, that's kind of too bad. I mean, the, the nice thing about it all is that, you know, all of those records did sound heavier and bolder and more nasty lives than they did on records, certainly, because they're some of the most timid-sounding records of all time by anybody, I think. But you're right. I mean, that, that was, a, and that's a whole different thing from the 70s. In the 70s, they, they got fed up with some of that stuff because it was so long and hard to play live because it, it, it was tricky in a, in a whole other way. And then, and then there's the famous stuff about things being, you know, written in a key that was too high for Getty, or even if it wasn't written in a, in a you know, inappropriate key as you age, it was still that yelpy high singing that, that was, you know, the originals had that. So are you going to, are you going to do that again? Kind of thing. So his singing also in the eighties became very, um, kind of, kind of a little more laid back and he was proud of it. He thought, Oh, these presto, it's my singing album and all this kind of stuff. Right. But, you know, I think, I think when you lay any of these leads, lead vocalists, whether they're the lead guy, or I've always argued this with the likes of Joe Perry or Keith Richards or, or, you know, Nikki, I think it's Nikki from Manic Street Preachers, the bass player. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
anytime these guys don't push air, it does your voice a disservice. So, so I think even Getty, when he was singing just too calmly, it just was not as impressive or cool. And, and it actually was less of a striking and, a, and an interesting voice, I think, at that point, too. But he thought, he thought it was better. So again, Getty has bad taste in music, too. <laughs> I found it fascinating when Rupert Hine was interviewed about Presto that he wasn't a fan of Getty's voice at all that he felt that he was singing too high all the time. And that one of the things he said he'd definitely do for the band is to bring Getty back down a little bit from the stratosphere that he was used to singing in. Yeah, so so there's Getty drinking Rupert's Kool-Aid, right? Uh, oh. And basically, you know, going along with it and going along with a suggestion from an outside person, you know, which they like to do, and that and that's to their credit. I mean, they liked fresh blood in there. They liked people with strong opinions who told them other things. So he went with it, and that's why he considers those sort of his singing albums. But, you know, on another tack, Getty is probably right. Like, if you analyze those records... You could say there's possibly, you know, stuff to find in there singing-wise that is more sophisticated in terms of phrasing and vocal melody and stuff like that. So he, he probably explored a few more things that are a little more arcane but, than the things I want out of him as an angry headbanger. Mm. It's interesting you bring up strong, they wanted a strong, opinionated producer. When they did Grace Under Pressure, they didn't get any opinions at all from Peter Henderson by the looks of it. Yeah, so that was a situation where you know, Steve Lillywhite had stood them up and they were a little shocked at this guy that they got in, not giving them much direction, just saying, oh, what do you guys think? Uh, try it again. Oh, yeah, well, that's that's fine uh, kind of thing. And also, you know, it, it's a crushing the studio, you know, Canadian classic winter. It was really, really cold making it. It took a long time. I thought they came out with a really cool album. I mean, I still quite like that album a lot. It's it's dark. It's a little weird. Um, the production is essentially correct, but it's also a little hard. It's got this kind of hard edge to the production on it. Kind of like a modern edge, but it hasn't gone over the board into 80s gratuities at that point. Gratuitousness. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that that's that was a situation. And, and of course, he never came back. And then they, then they went into Mr. Big, you know, Peter Collins, who's bringing this this UK pop sort of sensibility to it, proving that he doesn't have good taste in music either. So essentially, you know, he's he's bringing this thing, and they're liking that, and they're drinking his Kool Aid and saying, "Oh, let's let's try this stuff." And God knows why you want your records to sound that way. You know, may, maybe it has something to do with having it sound good on AM radio or your car radio or FM or whatever. But again, you know, it's them being intellectually curious and thinking that these other people are making better music than they are and being embarrassed about their own identity and, and moving into this other identity which is going to make them look young or whatever and probably they're seeing that the critics like in this stuff too you know these other bands are getting more respect oh it must be a more mature thing to do whereas you know time has proven correct that uh that the coolest most mature thing they did where they looked the most creative was was 2112 and hemispheres and moving pictures and stuff like that right yeah um Peter Collins, there's some interesting quotes in the in the book from him. Um, he didn't really seem to understand why the band wanted him as a producer in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not really sure which ones you're referring to exactly, but I mean, he he was his nickname was Mister Big, and I think they wanted. I mean, they did want a modern edge, and they wanted that that UK pop thing that he brought, that arcane, you know, Tears for Fears fix kind of 
Duran Duran idea to what they were doing. Get them away from the 70s. Like, he was definitely not a 70s guy. It's almost like they embraced him because he was so foreign and he didn't like many things about what Rush did. That's just not where he came from. But uh, but no, I, I can't remember exactly what uh, what exactly you're referring to. I, I think he, he was shocked that they considered him because he didn't have a background in their type of music. Yeah, that's right. I do remember that. And 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 again, that's that's Rush being uh, you know refreshingly contrarian and trying to go for something different. I mean, this is the reason they broke with Terry Brown for no really super great reason, but just just that it was getting a tiny bit stale. I mean, they they'd used him so so many times, and they were looking to do they were looking to move forward into new realms faster than Terry was, I suppose. I mean, Terry probably would have gone there, but they probably would have had just more of those polite misunderstandings uh, or, or disagreements, polite disagreements about where they're going in the, in the Canadian English way that they would have had those disagreements. They wouldn't mm. have been knockout, you know, dragged down fights, but Rush definitely wanted to go elsewhere and they, and they wanted new blood in there because those three and Terry together is just four guys, right? So you, um, you know, you, you, they, they wanted to expand, uh, expand where they were headed. Mm. Why do you think Ray Daniels never got involved in the sound of the band saying, look, guys, I understand you're influenced by all of this, but this might not be a, a good idea from a financial perspective. Do, do you think they even had that conversation with them or, or you just let them be what they wanted to be? That's really interesting because there's there's the usual sort of dynamics you would expect and then some other ones as well. And what I would say is that it does go back a little bit to that whole idea of we're crashing in flames on Caress of Steel. We're going to make the same record again, which is 2112. There's not a big difference in, in how really, truly commercial this record is. But they made it. They they sold a lot of copies. They, they got to be a big band. So, you know, the, the story goes is from that point on, they said, we're never going to let anybody tell us what to do from that point forward. So there's that. Then there is the dynamic that you're always going to be told somewhat what to do. I mean, I mean, the label, you know, to, to whatever extent, it's a great scale. The label, the management is going to somewhat tell you what to do. But basically, Rush, by falling into becoming a successful band with this very inaccessible music, it almost it, it did prove like fine okay this is who you are go ahead and do it knock yourself out it seems to be working so there's that too that's roughly a third dynamic a fourth dynamic that I always laugh about that I always find totally true is is when I'm I'm interviewing a band or whatever and I think this goes with Rush as well but when they say you know what man the label doesn't tell us what to do we deliver the album we tell them this is it this is what we're bringing them. Blah blah blah. I I have a feeling that sometimes if the label doesn't give a damn, they don't care. They're too lazy to interfere. They don't want to fight. You know, they you know like they, like they're really not that invested in 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 knocking themselves out and going out of their way to interfere because of because of true laziness and busyness and other things. So I would suspect with any manager and with any label, there's more of that than than is ever let on. That's another thing. But also, uh, you know, I think they had, you know, I do get this sort of undercurrent between the guys in Rush and the management that, that they basically think, we don't want anything to do with that sleazy business of management. We really don't want to talk to the office too much. It really kind of soils us. Um, and and management, I think, has basically decided, look, they're not going to listen to our suggestions anyways, and the label as well. So so that they, they built a separation there. 
throughout all of these things, some of them were probably conscious, some of them were probably unconscious, uh, but they built a separation that basically, you know, was already working by 1977. So, like, why break it, right? Mm. One of the things I definitely learned in this book, Martin, that I didn't know about Rush was Getty was allowed more or less do his thing and Neil was allowed to do his thing. But when it came to Alex doing his guitar solos, everyone wanted input in it. That Getty and Neil and the producer, that had to have been incredibly frustrating for him. Yeah, that that is pretty funny that you bring that up. I mean, and and again, it's almost a little bit like when you're doing things at a certain stage in the recording process, people are around anyways, and it's kind of interesting and all that kind of stuff. So that's why you probably really don't get guitarists interfering with the bed tracks and listening to the drums. I mean, it's just giving them a headache, right? They don't care. It's boring. It's monotonous. So, you know, I'm just I'm just coming up with this off the top of my head, but I, I do know this kind of from interviewing a lot of bands, and you probably do as well, but there are certain stages where nobody's really around, right? And the vocalist isn't around listening to the bed tracks in most, most cases. The guitarist really isn't around listening to the bed tracks. But by the time the guys are doing guitar solos, you know, sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes I've heard many, you know, I've interviewed many guys that, that said, you know, by the time they're doing guitar, I've already gone home to Florida. You know, like I've left, I've, I'm long gone, right? I, I don't give a shit anymore about mm. any of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is funny. I mean, it is there. It is something to tinker with. It's a short little piece of art. You're not asking to, re- you're, you're not asking to build the song back up from the bottom up so it's easy to make changes, right? That's another thing. So, you know, I, I don't think they were more or less telling Alex what to play um, because Alex can be a very spontaneous player and they're generally happy with what he comes up with. They're not, they're not interfering. They don't have strong, strong, strong opinions on Alex's guitar solos. But I guess all those reasons, I'm just saying it, it's kind of, a, kind of a fun little thing. Like if you're, if you're knocking off a 20-second guitar solo, it's pretty darn easy to, to ask the guy to do another one. Right, mm. but it, but it's not like okay, redo redo the drums of uh, of um, Cygnus X One, please. You know, big difference, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just found all that interesting because you had Alex going from being like up front in the mix w- with the band, his sound, and now he's having to find his space around the keyboards. When when Getty took over the band with the keyboards in the eighties, and that that whole change in style for him fascinated me yeah and yet and yet he did he did go willingly i mean it wasn't like he was fighting and biting and biting and scratching and kicking i mean literally you know these are three guys that think somewhat the same way so alex didn't mind modernizing either you saw it in their stage clothes and stuff right they they dressed in the in the light blue miami vice suits and stuff right their hairstyles i mean they they were embracing everything as they went along. And I don't think Alex was some, some anachronism from the 70s or anything. He was fine to learn and grow as well. So that, that's the cool thing about Rush. I mean, they are, they are enthusiastic, you know, in, intellectually curious people and moving forward, and, and they're fearless about it. I mean, they, they changed a lot over the years, right? So, you know, it's, you're right. I mean, I mean the keyboards become, uh, you know, sometimes the rhythm guitar, but you know, in in reality, Alex was still you know Alex was still the rhythm parts you know almost across everything there. But the keyboards did become more important. Hmm. Martin, do you think it's a coincidence that they kept working with producers that were from England? 
You know, I, I think that's a little bit of the romance with England, a little bit of the romance of, um, you know, feeling a little bit inadequate coming from Canada, thinking everything from elsewhere is more exotic. So, uh, and also loving English music growing up as a kid and, and now loving this new English music, this post-punk type music that the critics are liking. And you've always been, you know, made fun of by the critics. So yeah, there, all of that, all of that kind of goes in with it, right? You know, possibly even, um, maybe even a little anti-Americanism at the same time, right? Because because you are from Canada, you're a, you're a Commonwealth country. You're looking at American politics, and you're you're pretty. You know, those guys are pretty political people. So you know, I I I wouldn't put too much uh, in that, but I, but I'd say you know there are various subtle reasons to uh, to feel that um, you know. A, a Canadian musician to feel that, you know, an English producer is a, is a little more of an exotic, cool choice. You know, we, we know that people with English accents, they always sound like twice as intelligent as everybody else. Um, <laughs> true, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think all of that goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things, again, I learned in this book, especially in the first one, um, the amount of road work they did and the on the the albums that they brought out, they were they still did a lot of road work in the eighties. It kind of slowed down a little bit, but in the early eighties, the the road work is it was still ferocious, Martin. It, it, it's amazing that they didn't burn themselves out. Well, yeah, and especially when the stakes were so high, because now they're headlining everything, so they're always the headliner. And they're also the other stressful thing that would cause burnout is they're pouring. You know, once you could spend more money on new gizmos and uh, and and new props. And video, I mean, they were they were big um, innovators in video. Once you could spend more money on this, and already your mandate has always been to give the fans uh, all all you can, be very generous with your fans, they, they actually did take a lot of their profits and poured it right back into the stage shows. So the stage shows got bigger. They were always headlining. The stakes were higher, whether you're going to make money or lose money on a show. But famously, the, the great thing about them is that they had this business model where it was always bigger is better. I mean, you know, people always always give Kiss credit for the reputation of having the biggest show on earth. You got it, you know, the loudest band in the land, whatever, right? Greatest band in the world, greatest band in America. But, you know, a, a Rush stage show was always just bigger, bigger than a Kiss show eventually, right? A Rush show's got massively huge in the 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you you couldn't fit more stuff on stage than than you had at a, at a rush show, and and in the eighties that kind of all started. So they were they were quite innovative uh, in terms of bands building shows. I think they were ham. They even said in the book, Martin, the, the band were hampered on stage because of what they had to play, that they couldn't move around as much. So they really had to put money into everything else so that the show looked good. Yeah, and and you know what I've heard most. You know, I've heard many. Power trios, I don't know how many, let's say five. <laughs> I've heard power trios always say this, is is that they always felt a little inadequate because there wasn't that much going on on stage in terms of three guys, how much action you can put into things, right? Because with three guys, you know, one of them invariably is always chained to the microphone as well, right? So 
trios always felt they had to do other stuff, like, look here, look there, look there. And, you know, I, I'm sure that was not lost on Rush as well. Like, we, you know, and especially going out in the early days with the likes of Kiss and Aerosmith and stuff, you know, especially Kiss, you know, that the contrast was rife. It was so obvious that, okay, we, we you know, we, we got to up our game. So, so they did a great job of, uh, of directing your eyes all, all over the stage, like, like, to all that video and, uh, you know, rotisserie chickens or, or clothes dryers or whatever, right? Or, or even, even just a little stuff mounted on amplifiers and things, right? So they, they always did a good job of that. Mm. And the other thing that I learned in the book, uh, especially in the second one, there's a tremendous loyalty with the crew that a lot of the crew stayed with them for nearly all of their career. It's a very similar arc to, uh, to Iron Maiden. Yeah, Rush uh, famously always had just good relations with the office and the crew. You know, if you came on with the crew, like you think of a Howard Underlighter there, uh, 1974, and he was with them right to the end. And, and, you know, there's career opportunities. You essentially move up the ranks in that band, right? So they always had a loyalty like that. The office, I mean, look, they had Ray managing them since he ran away from home at 16 or whatever it was. Like, like ridiculously early, he got into the business, right? And he managed them right to the end. You know, the office was in the same place. So that's another cool thing that, that kind of tells you that these guys, you know, were kind of salt of the earth. They were grounded dudes. You know, even though there's a little bit of an undercurrent of Getty being like the tyrant of the band or whatever, or the boss or whatever, right? But generally speaking, they were just they were just good, decent guys, you know, nothing too unpredictable, not a lot of scandal there. And that reflected in how much loyalty there was on from the crew to the office to the band. Mm. In the in the eighties, Martin. Now I know the further on the eighties went, the less you liked the albums, but were you still one of these guys back then that every time they came around to promote a new record you still went to see him? I didn't see Rush a whole lot of times. I didn't go to a lot of concerts. I'm I'm famously uh, not a big concert guy, but that's really not why. I mean, I was just nomadic in the, the various universities I went to in the 80s and stuff. I just wasn't really around to see a lot of shows. And I was into a lot of different kind of music. You know, I, I went to a lot of uh, smaller metal shows and wave shows and stuff like that as well. So... I, I think I missed Rush almost all the time and didn't see them until much later. It was one of the bands like that. And, and most of my favorite bands I'm, I might have seen once or twice, you know, max over that first 25-year period. And I grew up in a small town. So, so yeah, I, I didn't go out of my way to see, uh, see a lot of bands. I did buy the albums every single time out immediately. And, you know, I, I was I was pretty disappointed, I suppose, um, because metal was getting heavier and I was into all all different kinds of metal all, all the time at that point. I remember in the late 80s, I was a massive fan of that whole Minneapolis thing with uh, Soul Asylum replacements, Husker Du. And when grunge came around, I was a massive, massive grunge fan. I loved hair metal. I loved thrash. I love the new wave of British heavy metal. So there was always a lot around. And, and Rush kind of fell out of the, the, the conversation of being all that relevant uh, when it came to those 80s albums. Mm. Martin, final question on the, on, for me. Um, when you were doing the 80s Rush book and you did the research and all the interviews and everything, was the one thing that stands out for you when you were writing it that you learned about Rush from that era that you didn't know? Boy, what would oh man, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, what would I say that's the pretty that I didn't know. But um, you, you see, you've done a lot. You've done Rush books in the past, and this is your first one that really went in depth. I think album by album yourself. 
And yeah. you, you did the album by album one with guest guys, you know, the contributors and, and that. I'm, I'm just wondering, is that, now if you can't remember, it's okay. I'm just wondering, does that stick out for you, though? No, I, I can't really think of it, but, you know, it, it is funny. I mean, all three, the only reason I did these these books is because I did the other three so differently. I mean, only the first one kind of relates to this, but that was 66,000 words. And these three combined are going to be like 360,000 words. So it's a big, big difference. The thing that kind of spurred it along is that it was the same publisher. And also the thing that spurred it along uh, was the idea that, okay, I worked on the Rush movie. We had all these great interviews. They're never going to see the light of day. So I just swung a deal with Scott and Sam and said, look, can, can we use this stuff? And I'll, I'll spin it into books. And we came to an agreement real easily. And, uh, and, and that's why uh, all of this is in here. So, <laughs> you know, the funny, the funny thing is that, is that I really, uh, what I learned is this isn't exactly a Rush thing, but I mean, it's pretty amazing when you make a documentary, how much stuff doesn't get used. I mean, to get that movie, that movie lived for a long time at like three hours. It was two hours, and we'd sit in these meetings, and we'd shave off another 20 seconds here and then whatever. And then right at the end, it literally got knocked down all the way to 88 minutes. So so you think of you know all the footage that wasn't used. It was just hours and hours and hours of footage that, that wasn't used to make a movie. So... That that's one of the most amazing things is is seeing these documentaries get done and how you know they they often joke. I mean, I don't know how much of a joke it is, but they they literally say that uh, for every hour of interview footage you you do, you use one minute. <laughs> it, it's like a crazy it's like a crazy um kind of rule they have in documentary making that 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 kind of falls to, uh, you know, and so that would be a one to 100 ratio. I wouldn't say it was one to 100. I mean, I definitely wasn't that drastic, but I would say used in the film, like just, just looking at raw interview footage, I would say used in the film was probably, uh, one, one 25th at least of, of what, um, you know, what was done. Wow. (laughs) I remember, I don't know if you know who Bob Nalbandian is. Oh, of course, yeah, good yeah. buddy of mine. Yeah, yeah. I, I've spoken to Bob a few times, and he for for a few years there, he didn't do his Skull Sessions podcast. And I was saying, where where have you been? And he said he's been doing these documentaries, and they just take up so much of your time and editing yeah. and editing and editing. I'm like, wow. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we would sit, we would walk by those editing booths and see those guys with those three big screens there, and they'd just be working, working, working night and day. Uh, on these and then we'd sit and do these little meetings and and like we would sit in a darkened room like like uh, myself and ralph and sam and scott and maybe an editor and we would sit and watch the rush movie and we'd and we'd say ah you know that kind of story narrative there that should be moved to there or whatever And, and it's like i'm thinking oh my god it's like half the time you're going you know what I don't think it's particularly better if you move that to there. And it sounds like a mountain of work. Right. And, and then, but yeah, we would do these things. We, we would just like, like chop up this movie sitting there making notes and then, you know, and then, and then reel off our notes at the end of it. And, and it just, you just saw things getting moved and changed and whole storylines that you were developing, getting chopped right out and stuff. It's just agonizing. So that's why I'm, I love books. That's why I like, you know, there's reasons I like books more than magazines, but that's the reason I like books more than movies. You really can, you know, you really can essentially, especially when you do a trilogy like this, where you say, look, I'm just going to go as long as it takes. 
you can use way more of the stuff than you can when you're making a movie. Mm. So, Martin, do you still have the Tin Lizzy book for sale on your website? Yep, the Tin Lizzy uh, is is really still just recently come in. I have lots of them. So, martinpopoff.com, there's PayPal buttons there for um, for everything. Uh, international, Canada, the States, full description. I sign them, send them out. Christmas time, I start getting a lot of uh, orders, uh, a lot of orders from women actually uh, at this time of year, and it's the only time really. And uh, and usually, you know, it's it's their boyfriend or husband or whatever. But yeah, definitely. And I I've, I've got uh, the two rush books. The third one's in the spring, but I've got the two rush books as well that I can sign and send out. MartinPopoff.com. Mm, uh, any book coming out before the rush book early in 2021? I think the angel will be done, you know, sometime late December. I'll have the angel book. Okay, excellent. Well, Martin, always a pleasure. Yes, this was fun. I, I loved, uh, yeah, you, you brought up some really, really good points that we uh, we explored that I've never really thought of before, so that was really cool. Okay, well, Martin, have a good rest of the day, and next time you have a book okay. out, I'll, I'll have you back on, and we'll, we'll chat about it. Sounds good. All Thanks, right, Martin, Chris. have a good weekend. All right. Right, yeah, bye. Yeah. There you go. There is your focus on metal for this week. And a big thanks to Reb Beach for coming back on the show. I don't know how many times we've had Reb on so far. Definitely uh, this week it is uh, two guests that have been on for uh, quite a few different times. But anyways, you want to find out more about what's going on with Reb. Like he mentioned, you can head over to rebbeach.com. He's got all his current news up there as well as a small selection merch and uh, some links to people that he worked with in the past and present and stuff. So there's even a link up there if you want to go over to Sir Guitars and check those out. You can find all that and more up at rebbeach.com. And of course, don't forget to pick up your own copy of Reb's latest solo instrumental album, a view from the inside from our buddies over at the always busy, ever-releasing Frontiers. And of course, as always, more big thanks to our Martin Popoff. Martin is, uh, you know, pretty much ingrained into the history of Focus on Metal because it was, in fact, uh, an interview that I did with Martin that even got Richie to begin to start to listen to the show in the first place. So there you go, a little bit of a Focus on Metal factoid there about Martin Popoff. But again, big thanks to Martin for coming on and talking to Richie about uh, really... Richie's undisputed favorite era of Rush, which was the 80s era. I'm more the 70s guy, but uh, that's why uh, music works. Everyone's got a different taste, right? Or as cited several times in Richie's chat with Martin, people that had um, poor taste. And as we always tell you, you want to get any of Martin's books, the best place to get them is from Martin himself. And you head up to martinpopoff.com. That's P-O-P-O-F-F.com. And he's got all the books he's got in stock. He's got PayPal links, all that good stuff. I even urge you, if you're going to order stuff from Martin, bundle that stuff together and you'll get a better postal discount as well. They all get signed, personalized to you or whoever you tell Martin to personalize them to. And lots of good stuff up there. And of course, sometimes Martin does run out and he'll, you know, it'll show it right on there. It's out of stock. If you do and you really, really want that book, then uh, you know you know always email Martin, find out if it's going to come back in stock, or if it's out of stock from uh, Martin, it's a good chance everyone's trying to go everywhere else. You might be able to get it, so then I would uh, recommend you go to Amazon or some of the other places. Won't be personalized, but at least you will get your Martin Popoff book. And I have to say that I have got a lot of books, and I have about uh, three shelves now that are nothing but Martin Popoff books. All right, well that is it. Thanks for listening to us again. 
for another week. We enjoy coming to you each and every week. Hope you keep on listening to us. Although I will say, having said that, that uh, we are coming to the end of December in which we uh, decide to take our annual winter break, take a few weeks off, and recharge the batteries. So in a few weeks, you will find there is uh, no new Focus on Metal for that week, and that's because Richie and I are enjoying, or at least trying to enjoy, the uh, the annual winter break before we plunge into Focus on Metal 2021. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.